Good morning. Good morning. And Merry Christmas. We're so glad that you chose to spend Christmas morning here at Calvary Chapel with us. Some family visiting, I'm sure, and busy with the kids, and yet here we are making the priority Christ's Mass. Now, that's, that's not something we celebrate as a Mass, but that's the idea behind Christmas. The idea was to celebrate Christ's death, birth, death, and resurrection on this particular day. Now, whether this is the day that he was born or not is irrelevant. This is the day we set aside to remember uh, Christ's birth. Now, having said that, I've always believed that Sunday even trumps Christmas. But how fortunate we are that every couple of years we have the opportunity to be together on Christmas, but also on Sunday morning. Amen? So I appreciate you all being here. This morning we are going to be in God's Word in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, a scripture that was read, some of it read this morning during our worship service. And I also want to thank Pastor Russ and the worship team. You know, what a wonderful way to start Christmas morning in worship, worshiping Jesus Christ, worshiping God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, just a little side note, I I took a little poll and realized that our worship team ran about 47 years in ages, from 10 up to about my age. And I thought to myself, isn't that a blessing? Let's pray this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you so much for us having this service today and this opportunity to be together. We thank you for the little things, like the fact that it's comfortable, the fact that the heat works. The fact that we can gather together this morning and that the weather didn't get in the way. A little cold, but the weather did not get in the way of us gathering this Sunday. And as we look forward to the rest of this day and families being together and friends gathering, we know that the priority is for us to first start this day by acknowledging you, studying your word, and receiving from you so that we can be the light to the nations, and especially, first and foremost, to our friends and family. May we be that light that light that we'll talk about today, the light that brought all men and women to you, the light of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at a scripture that's very familiar, but we're actually going to back up to the first verse. Because in the first verse, we learn a few things, and I want to set the stage, and most of you probably know this, but Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Now, why is that important? Because the things he talked about were prophecies. Now, not all prophecies predict the future, but much and most of Isaiah's prophecies did, and especially and specifically those prophecies that spoke about the coming Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. So I may say Christ, I may say Messiah, but the anointed one is what those words literally mean. So we're going to be talking about the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, the Jews knew, because going back to Genesis, there was a promise that he would send, that is, God would send a child. That God would send someone to save us from sin. Some of that was not revealed right away. Over time, the details of his coming, including where he was born and when he would come, to the, to the day when he would present himself in Jerusalem, all of these things were finally given to us over time. At the time of Isaiah, they were just beginning to learn some of the details related to who this Christ would be. 
And so this morning in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7, uh, I don't usually do this, but the title of this message is, What Child Is This? What Child Is This? Well, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Can I hear an amen? For those who were in distress in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, what the prophet is doing is sharing the word of God as revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And as he shares this word, it's one of hope, but especially and specifically to a land of darkness. I want you to think about the world we live in today. More than ever, our country, our culture, even the world can be described as a land of darkness. Darkness in the sense of wickedness, yes, darkness in the sense of people not knowing the truth and believing lies, but also darkness in the sense that the light of Christ is, is not seen in so many today. And, and unfortunately, many times in our churches, the light of Christ has dimmed. I'm not going to say gone out, but it's dimmed. It's not as bright and as strong as it once was. I've been considering our culture, and, you know, it was really, really hard for me to sort of get in the mood for Christmas yesterday because I was thinking so much about the way things used to be. And you can become nostalgic to a fault. And I remember, you know, it's, it's natural at this time of year to remember people who have passed on, loved ones that are no longer with us. And you remember when you were a child, and Christmas always had that sort of magic allure. And, and some of that was just being a child, but... A lot of the special aspects of Christmas are gone for a lot of us now that remember those days because the world approaches it so differently. But you know, that's just the trappings, the outer trappings of Christmas. The truth of Christmas is as bright as it's ever been. And being in God's Word today helps us to realize there was a time, oh, about 2,000 years ago, where the world was in darkness, just like it is today. And we read about a light coming to a particular place within Israel. Now, this is interesting because we're going we're to answer three questions today. We, we talked about what child is this, and, and there's three sub-questions about that. And the first is, where will he come from? Where will he come from? Micah tells us where he would be born, but Isaiah tells us where he would be from. In fact, we know from this scripture, he would be from the troubled land of Zebulun and Naphtali. I know that means nothing to you. In fact, if you were to go in and Google a map, Zebulun and Naphtali, I don't even know if you'd find anything. You'd probably find some Jewish deli or something. You probably wouldn't find the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But these were lands of gloom and distress in the time that Jesus was born. Zebulun lay between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Naphtali lay in the northeastern corner of the land, extending far into Syria, Lebanon. I want you to think about that area of the world today. This morning, imagine being in, being in the area of Syria, Lebanon this morning. Some of our, our congregants here, some of our church family, have been to that part of the world. It is not a wonderful place to be. It today is very much a land of gloom and darkness. But it was back then as well. It was actually called the land of Kabul, which in the original language means displeasing, dirty, 
and good for nothing. Imagine coming from a place like that. People make fun of Jersey, and I'm a guy who's been in Jersey my whole life. Because they go down the turnpike and they see certain areas of our state, our beautiful state, and they assume that it's all like that. We know better. But I've heard people talk about Jersey as a place like Kabul, a place where it's displeasing and dirty and good for nothing. We know better, amen? But this was a very difficult place to be. There was a man by the name of Hiram of Tyre, and, and that's how he referred to this land, a land of Kabul. There were lands like this that were lands of defeat and failure. Places where nothing seemed to go right. I I think of Ukraine and Europe in the area of of Central Europe, Eastern Europe today. The things that are going on there. There are many places in the world today that could be described in the way that Zebulun and Naphtali are described in the Bible. You know, the Israelites never fully conquered the Canaanites living in these lands. They were supposed to, they did not. So they were lands of failure. That is, the failure of the Jews to do what God had commanded them to do. That area of the world suffered invasions by many of Israel's enemies throughout their history. So it was a place of defeat. And large numbers of foreigners who did not serve God but served other gods settled among these mountains. So that's the picture. That's the, that's the feeling, the sentiment of what it was like to live in this part of the world that Isaiah is talking about. And we're told that Messiah would come from this unenlightened land of Galilee. And of course, as we've read our New Testament, we know, yes, Jesus from Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, he's from this very place. And Isaiah talks about this 700 years before he's born, roughly. Now, these were lands infiltrated by the Gentiles, filled with darkness and death. And even the apostle Nathaniel testified to the prejudice against this area. When he found out that the Messiah came from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from a place like this? You know, the Pharisees also spoke poorly of this area in John's Gospel in chapter 7. When speaking with Nicodemus, they they had the attitude, look in the scriptures, no prophet comes out of Galilee. They looked at this place as a very bad place to be. And another thing we learn later on in Matthew's Gospel, that the people of Galilee spoke with an obvious accent. The, The thing about our nation... This is true in most nations, by the way, not just the United States. But in the United States, we can kind of tell where you're from in the United States by your accent, at least originally. So if you're from the South, you might have a little bit of a twang, you know. If you're from the North, you may have a funny-sounding R. If you're from Boston, Boston. If you're from New Jersey, you speak perfect English. (laughs) Everyone else sounds a little weird to us, right? New York is close. California, they have that perfect speech, actually, to be. They have that Hollywood, you know, radio voice and accent. But, you know, throughout the country, you'll, you'll hear different accents. Well, Galilee was the same. There were people from this area of the world. When they showed up, and they, oh, yeah, we know where he's from. I had an experience like that on one of my trips. It might have been the first or second time I went to California. I was studying in the ministry, and I went to the Calvary Chapel churches out there, and I remember someone coming up to me, and, and I was in uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship in uh, Riverside, California. And someone came up, and they said, where are you from? I didn't even open my mouth. I said, where are you from? Because you're definitely not from around here. I'm like, really? What? I mean, what? Sometimes our accent, our behavior, our dress, it, it betrays where we're from. This was true for Jesus. This was true for his 
disciples, those that came from that part of the world. So Jesus actually fulfilled this prophecy by preaching in the land of Galilee. He brought light to the darkest place. I mean, this was the principal scene of his public ministry. Think about it. Here, most of his parables were spoken, and most of his miracles wrought. In Galilee, in the area of darkness that we're talking about today, that Isaiah prophesied, 19 of 32 parables and 25 of 33 miracles in this area of the world. In fact, his first miracle in Cana and his last miracle on the shores of Galilee were all in this part of the world. The Sermon on the Mount? in the same area of the world. The Transfiguration, Galilee, that same area in the north. Here is where he called his first disciples. This was the place of ministry. And because of that, it fulfills what Isaiah told us would happen. Now, it is important to know that it is always in the place of greatest need that we will find our Lord Jesus. The darkest place, the gloomiest place, the place that needs the most light is the place that we will find Jesus. We often think that we're going to find Jesus on the mountaintop, and sometimes we do, but I would suggest we find him in the valleys. We find him in the places where people are discontent and lonely. We find him in the places we would never expect to find him, and we find him sincerely ministering among people in need. And when you do likewise, when you go into all the earth, whether it's on a mission trip or in ministry, and and you minister in that way, you're going to find yourself very close to Jesus because Jesus works in those places. Where there is gloom and distress, he brings hope. Where there is humility, he brings honor. And where there is darkness and death, he brings a great light. So we've answered the question, looking forward from the time of Isaiah, where will he come from? We know that now. The area of Galilee, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, which were the names of the two tribal regions where these cities and and locations were. Okay, next question. What will he do? All right, we know where he's going to come from, but what will he do? If you're looking forward and and, and you're Isaiah and you're looking forward 700 years in the future and you're sharing with God's people, okay, this is where he's going to come from. What is he going to do? Well, this is a a wonderful truth. He's going to bring rejoicing. He's going to bring rejoicing. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. That is, when when people receive the reward for their efforts, their labors, the harvest was the time of year when you celebrated a whole year's work, kind of like we celebrate when we get a Christmas bonus, if if they still do those types of things. Yeah, usually you get it. Now you get like a bill. Oh, you owed a little bit more to the IRS. That's your Christmas bonus. But, you know, we celebrate when things go well, and they would rejoice. Now, we know this is true, because his birth brought great rejoicing. In fact, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The angels in heaven rejoiced at his birth. The shepherds in Judea rejoiced at his birth in Bethlehem as well. Simeon and Anna rejoiced at his temple dedication in Jerusalem. The Magi from the east came and rejoiced in his presence We believe in Nazareth at that point, but wherever they were, they were in a house and the Magi found them because the star led them there and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now his life, not just his birth, brought rejoicing. Christ's life brought great rejoicing. Jews and Gentiles rejoiced at his many miracles throughout Israel. 
The disciples rejoiced as he entered Jerusalem as Messiah on that day of triumphal entry, predicted to the day by Daniel the prophet. They rejoiced at his resurrection from the dead, which we celebrate in the spring, but that truth is just as true today as it always was and always will be. And they rejoiced when he ascended into heaven. If you look at those scriptures, joy is at the center of those moments. He came to bring rejoicing. And his life brings rejoicing. We rejoice in our salvation. Amen? And joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So, when we think about Messiah and why he came, what will he do? He came to bring great joy. So I want to stop, pause, and ask a question. In serving Christ, do we experience great joy? This is a very difficult time of year for many of us. For a number of reasons. There's probably at least ten reasons I can think of as to why Christmas can be very difficult for certain people. And for others, it's a time of great joy. Or maybe it was a time of great joy, but now not so much. Or maybe for many years it wasn't, and now it is. But it should always be a time when we reflect in God's word, Christ's coming, that we celebrate and experience great joy. So how do we experience joy? Oh, Pastor Tim, I'm unhappy. I get it. There's a lot of things I'm unhappy about in our world today. Many, many, many things. In fact, if I were to read the news, which I won't today, but if I were to read the news, I could probably find nine out of ten things that I would learn that I would be unhappy about. But I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy. Can I hear an amen? Joy is something that happens to you spiritually when you acknowledge perhaps your unhappiness, the circumstances of your life, and you look past them into eternity and you say, it doesn't matter because I will spend eternity with him. It doesn't matter that I'm suffering right now because this is momentary. This is a light momentary trouble and affliction. This is something I'm going to get through. And even if I deal with it for the rest of my life, brief or long, one day will come where I stand in the presence of God and it will all make sense and I will not look back and he'll wipe every tear from my eye. That's joy. And joy comes in the morning. Sorrow at night. The scripture says, but joy comes in the morning. That's a very poetic way of saying, you know, sometimes we go to bed unhappy. Sometimes we go to bed and go to sleep and we're dealing with the troubles of life. But when we wake up in the morning, great is your faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. The book of Lamentations, a book of sorrow and unhappiness tells us. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you look at life that way, as difficult as things may be, sickness, sorrow, death, all of the things we've had to deal with and we will deal with in life, pain, suffering, the trials, the tribulations of life, when we look at it in the light of Christ came to bring joy, then we can say, yes, this is a dark place. The scripture told us that Jesus would come from and to a dark place. But he brought joy. He brought rejoicing. He also brings freedom. See, joy is great, but freedom is just as good. Look at freedom in verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's talking about a people who are oppressed. And I didn't understand oppression until I visited Cuba the first time in 2004. 
going back in 2015 and then 2017, I learned what oppression looks like. I didn't know before that. We used to think, well, we're being oppressed here. No. There is some degree of persecution, perhaps. There's some degree of difficulty that we deal with in our country, but we don't really know what oppression looks like. Some of you have come from countries where oppression is a way of life, or you visited them. These people were not only living in darkness, they were living a life of slavery. Not only slavery to sin, but slavery to their occupying powers, like at this time that Christ was born, it was Rome, before that it was Greece, before that it was you know, Medo-Persia, Babylon. These people before that, Assyria, these people knew what it was to live under oppression. And what does Isaiah the prophet say? He says that freedom would come. In fact, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah when he proclaimed this fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 61, he told us that he would bring good news to the poor. And Jesus quoted this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, direct quote from Isaiah 61. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and release for the oppressed. So he came not only to bring joy, but to bring freedom. Do you feel free today? Are you free today? If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. You can experience joy and freedom in the midst of even things like unhappiness and oppression. And I will tell you one thing that I experienced in Cuba, more joy and freedom in the spirit than I could possibly imagine or even experience here. How is that possible? How is it possible that in that place in the world, and there are many places in the world where this is true, that there could be such joy and freedom when there's certainly so much unhappiness, difficulty, and oppression? Because if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. In a way that you can't be free otherwise. And so he came to bring freedom. He brings freedom to all mankind. He set us free from the penalty of sin through his death on the cross. Amen? He set us free. You are no longer bound to a sinful life. You are no longer kept back by your sin nature. You can serve God and bring glory to God throughout your entire life because you have Christ within you, because you've given your life to Jesus Christ. He freed us from something else. He freed us from the law. The law was the standard of God's righteousness that no man, no woman could meet, but he freed us from that law so that we can serve God in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit is so much better than the law. The law is right, the law is good, but we fall short. The Spirit, well, he brings us to the place where we can serve God according to his will, according to God's will, but we do that in the power of the Spirit. It is possible to, quote-unquote, keep the law, but only in the power of the Spirit. And when we fail, and we will, we have Jesus Christ as a mediator between God and man. That's freedom. That is freedom. And he taught us the truth of God's word, which sets us free. And so, we already learned where he will come from. Yes, Christ came from that part of the world, the dark part of the world. What will he do? He'll bring joy, rejoicing, freedom. And he did, and he does. And then we get to the last of the questions we need to answer today. And I think that uh, we'll pick it up in verse 5. 
Finishing up on that theme of oppression, it says, Every warrior's boot is used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood, he will be, or will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. That's talking about peace. A peace that God will bring, a freedom that he will bring, but also a peace that he will bring when he comes again. Now, we haven't experienced that part of that prophecy just yet. But we will, and we're looking forward to that day. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But who is he? Who is this Messiah? Who is this Christ? Well, we know him as Jesus, but they didn't. They were just sort of guessing at who he would be. But who is he? Well, let's read in verse 6. Isaiah says words that are famous now, well known now. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal or the passion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, we're looking forward from the time of Isaiah to the Christ who would come, but beyond the time in which we're living to his second coming. And we're seeing it all in one giant snapshot. But still, these words are true of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're told he would be both a child and a son. How? Well, that doesn't sound so weird or strange, right? A child and a son. You read that and you say, well, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, it's more than that. Because you see, a human child was born in a manger. This we know. In fact, Isaiah told us in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel. In the New Testament, they say, which is interpreted God with us. So God was going to be with them, and he's with us. <clears throat> and that was going to happen when the Messiah would come. So how is that possible? Well, it starts with a human child, born in a manger, which is what we contemplate and celebrate on Christmas morning. But he's not just a child born. He is a son given. The divine Son of God, given by the Father. He who became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his Son. The Son existed before the child was born. That's the point. You would not have understood it that way if you read this back then. But looking back at who Christ is, and that's what we're contemplating at this moment. Who is he? You would understand. Well, wait a minute. This is no mere child. This is he who is of old, the ancient of days. This is he who was in the beginning with God and was God, who made his dwelling place with us. So yes, a child was born. That happened in a moment. But there was never a time where Jesus was not God. There was never a time when he wasn't the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And so God the Father gave God the Son in the power of God the Spirit. And that is what Isaiah gives us a glimpse at, looking forward 700 years. But he will be a man of recognized authority. That's what Isaiah said. He would be a man of authority. No one would question the authority of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. There's never a time where he's at a loss. 
There's never a time uh, in the Gospels where you see, well, well, Jesus is, you know, really out of control. Things have gotten out of control. They took him against his will, and, and oh my goodness, poor Jesus, it didn't work out the way he planned. You would be wrong to think that way. Throughout the Gospels, we learn Jesus was always in control. God the Father sent the Son who operated and worked in the power of the Spirit. And there was never a moment where anything ever happened in his life and through his life that wasn't completely under his authority. Now listen, in the Gospels, I'll summarize, you see his authority over the earth? I mean, he could control the weather. You see his authority over the natural world? Anything and everything that happened around him, he was in control of. He created it all. How about his authority over the spiritual world? Sicknesses and demons and all of the things in the spiritual world, they, they, were, they were under Jesus' authority. He had authority over the scriptures such that when he taught, people noticed. They said, he doesn't teach like the Pharisees. He teaches as one with authority. He had authority over all mankind. He never gave that up. He willingly submitted to the torture that saved our souls, that saved our spirits from sin. And he had authority and has authority over life and death. And he proved it when he rose again. He is a man of recognized authority. Oh, yes, a child born. Oh, yes, a son given. But a man of recognized authority. And we're told in the latter part of verse 6 that he will be called by many names. Now, these aren't actual names. Even Emmanuel just means God with us. That, that, that wasn't his name. We, we know the angel told Joseph his name would be Jesus. God saves. Jehovah saves. And he was named Jesus, but he is God with us. But he's also called in a sort of way like adjectives or descriptives. His character is described for us in advance. Again, 700 years in, in the past before Christ came. He's described in this way. And I'm going to give you a little definition of these words. Now, first of all, wonderful counselor makes it sound like he's a wonderful counselor, and he is. But it's actually two separate words and two separate descriptions. Wonderful. Let's start with wonderful. It means marvelous, admirable, and distinguished. He is wonderful. I can remember when I was uh, a worship pastor in the city, uh, we would occasionally have choirs, and I would direct the choir and uh, hand out all the parts, and I happened to score this one particular uh, spiritual. Uh, He is wonderful. Just a wonderful, wonderful song to sing and I had like six different parts and we performed it you know we shared it in church and afterward one of the other worship leaders came up to me who wasn't involved and said that was wonderful but he is wonderful can I hear an amen marvelous and that brings joy he's also though a counselor now there are many people who need to talk about the things they're going through all of us do and if we don't have someone or we really need that extra bit of help, we might pay somebody or talk to somebody who who really can help us work out the issues of our life. But understand that a counselor means to advise, to counsel, consult, or devise plans. This is Jesus. He's not only wonderful, but he's a counselor. You can go to him and receive counsel through the word of God, through prayer, and he will guide you and lead you and direct you. Whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Isaiah shared that as well. Understand, you can go to God, and that light of the word of God, which is a light to your path, a lamp for your feet, will guide you through life's decisions. He's a wonderful counselor, but he's the mighty God. 
You know, I don't know why people miss this. They'll go to a uh, performance of Handel's Messiah, and they'll, they'll hear these words, and then people will doubt whether Jesus is God. How do you, how do you doubt that? How do you, when Isaiah said it very clearly, mighty God, uh, does there need to be any explanation? Does there need to be any interpretation? Is it difficult to see that what Isaiah said was that when he would come, when the child would be born, when the son would be given, that he would be God himself? Mighty God. God in all of his creative power and might. When you say mighty God, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's El Shaddai, the God Almighty. It's the idea of presenting God as all-powerful. All-powerful. Mighty God who created all things and can do all things. That is who he is. Amen? Everlasting Father. Now this gets confusing. Because how can he be both the son that was given and the everlasting father who gave the son? How is that possible? I don't have any idea. Is it wrong of me to say that after decades of serving the Lord and studying his word, I have no, absolutely no clue how the father and the son could be one with the spirit? You know, I joke around. Someone will say, oh, pastor, can I talk to you? And you'll hear me do this sometimes. Oh, you want want to explain the Trinity? It's a little joke I say sometimes. But the point is, I don't really have the answers. I'm not the counselor. He is. He is the counselor. Jesus Christ is the counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God, but he's also the everlasting father. That is, he's God throughout all eternity without beginning or end. Always has been, always will be God. Again, I can't sit here and get a whiteboard and give you a formula that will explain how you can have three persons in one God, but that is the God we serve as revealed in the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And not only at no point was Jesus not God, he was also at no point not one with the Father and the Spirit. That's a lot, isn't it? But finally, Prince of Peace. And you might be thinking, where's the peace? I remember back, I think it might have been the 70s or the 80s, I think it was Wendy's, had a commercial, and this older woman would show up at the restaurants of their competitors and say, where's the beef? Remember that? Where's the beef? Where's the peace? Have you asked that question recently? Because I ask it all the day, every day. Where's the peace in the world? Well, you see, not all that Isaiah prophesied has been fulfilled. Yes, he brought peace when he came. Peace, the kind of peace that matters most... God who brings peace between himself and mankind. He brought peace, that is, he dealt with the sin issue by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God through faith. He brought peace, spiritually. But we still pray those words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and they have yet to be fulfilled. Now, I'm not saying God's will isn't done on earth. I'm saying the kind of will and presence of God and sovereign control of heaven is not present on earth. You'd have to be in denial not to admit that we've got a long way to go before things on earth look like they look in heaven. Are you with me? But he is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, it means that he has peace. Yes, he brings peace between God and man. Yes, he does. But the peace of Messiah is a peace that has yet to be realized on the earth. He is the Messiah. And he will reign at peace with mankind forever. 
He will reign in Jerusalem, as we're told here, on the throne of David, over the kingdom of Israel forever. And he will reign justly and righteously forever. And he will reign in the power of Jehovah God forever. Or did you miss that? Back in Isaiah 9. He will reign. Notice, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then we're told that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The power, the passion of God in Jesus Christ, in human form, accomplished the peace that we have with God, and it was accomplished in this way. It was accomplished through his death on the cross. His being raised from the dead on the third day. His ascending into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and his promise to come again to judge the living and the dead and set up his kingdom of peace forever. Oh, now we know, according to Isaiah, what child is this? Where will he come from? We know that. What will he do? We know that. Who Who he is? We know that too. What child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch her keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. You're a good and gracious God, and and, and you have done it all. And you are, as Isaiah described, all of the things we read about today. And we anxiously await for you to come again and finish what you've already begun in our hearts on earth. We look forward to that day, but we can have peace today. And the most important thing, that the joy and the freedom and the peace that's talked about here can be experienced in our hearts by faith today if we simply cry out and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be your child. We look at the manger, we see the child given, but we want to be your child, born again to you, to live our lives for your glory, to spend eternity with you, to acknowledge that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, to acknowledge that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead, to acknowledge that you will spend, we will spend eternity with you forever and ever. Lord God, by faith we cry out to you and we ask that this Christmas we would know what child is this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.